Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Rupert, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Chris. How are you doing? Yes, I'm, I'm, I've really been looking forward to our conversation. And I should first off start by thanking you for joining my Facebook One, One Life Smash It community group. Yeah, I've been, in, I've, been enjo- yeah I've been enjoying it. Uh, you know, normally, I'm, I'm off charging around the world on either working or on one of my motorcycle or yomping adventures but uh because of covid you know i've sort of been i've been stuck here you know i'm here in hong kong and uh you know i started watching i hadn't watched any news really and i soon gave that up for the same reasons you've probably given up watching the mainstream news and i started getting onto youtube and 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 you know sort of following all this this new new world called you know the the podcast world which has been enlightening it really has and then i found you and uh i've been following some you know some of your causes which are which are close to home and uh i like all the you know the nutrition you know men of our age looking after ourselves keeping on top of things keeping positive all that sort of thing so i've i've enjoyed it and uh and then it's expanded i'm following your friend who's currently yomping from uh, John O'Groats to Land's End, I think. Yeah, he's, um, uh, he's uh, le- legging it, isn't he? He's um. Yeah. It's Mike for people at home. That's Mike Buster Keating. I did a video about him running the length of the country. Um, yeah, it's funny, Rupert, actually, because I guess I can blow my own trumpet a bit. He he said I inspired him to do it. He's the second person that's that's attempting it since since I did it. The first chap. Uh, didn't get very far, unfortunately. Uh, I did try to tell him, don't carry so much weight. I carried 15 kilos and that was that's yep. all my camping equipment and it was way too much. But um, yep. there's only so much pounding the body, the, the body can take on, especially when you're running on the roads. But yeah, good yep. luck to Mike out there. I'm always humbled, Rupert, when someone joins me, whether it's on my Patreon or, or Facebook or whatever. Um, just just humbled it's such a a beautiful thing to be able to share a bit of humanity with with people and find out that we we all we all share a bit of common ground yeah exactly i think that i think that's the point it's you know i've i've been out in the far east a long time and i'm sort of it's like life on mars really you know that that series where you you go back in time and i'm i'm still in the 80s in a way I mean, it's you know we'll talk about it probably later about Hong Kong and 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 so forth. But uh, you know, I feel like you know when you've come out here and lived this sort of colonial life, and then you've you've continued onwards. Um, it's it seems sometimes that you know the UK where I'm from has gone off in a in a different direction, and it's it's refreshing to see there's still people like you back there, you know, who are just you know seem we have we have a lot in common. Yeah, it's kind of all roads lead to Rome for a lot of us at the grand old age of 50. I was actually 51, was it day before yesterday? Um, yeah, happy birthday. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> 50. But, 
it's interesting times let let's not talk about the current situation simply because it becomes an editing nightmare yep to sure. then get to get to then get the podcast through through youtube but i think yeah. everyone knows what we're on about it, it's yep it's um interesting times it's incredibly difficult times for a lot of people and and it comes down to the fact that some people are still living in the old system. They, they live in the matrix. They, they believe their, their mainstream media. They, they haven't yet had a, a, a moment of enlightenment in life that's opened their eyes up to the fact it's all a facade and it's all a lie. Um, mm. And I wish, I wish there was a way you could just flick a switch in people and they'd go, oh, right, yeah, no, I get you now, but it, it's just not that simple, is it? Yeah. Yeah, as I said, you know, I, I turned off. You know, I, I think being here during the, uh, you know, the uh, disturbances last year and then seeing the Western media reports, which were completely skewed. Mm. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, because I'm a former Royal Hong Kong police officer, but, um, you know, when I, you know, whichever one you watch, the CNN or, or, or BBC or Sky, it just seemed a slanted, a slanted, you know, um, um, you know, reporting of what, what was actually going on. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't balanced. And, you know, I grew, you know, I grew up at the BBC like you, and I've, I've been far off places listening to BBC World Service and uh, enjoying it. And it's a completely different thing now. And, you know, without going off on a tangent on this stuff, I just stopped watching it. And that's oh. hence why I started watching, you know, there's no point. There's no point arguing against it. It's, you can, you, you, I think you, you mentioned in one of your podcasts about people jump, jumping in and writing comments and things like this. And I've been guilty of it myself. And, there's a, and, and a few of us, um, you know, former officers, and, we, and we've just said amongst us, what's the point? Just say nothing. It's, no. a sh it's a shame, Rupert, because you get to a certain age, it, 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 and if you're just reasonably educated, you, you can't listen to Radio 1 anymore. That's just absolute trash. And then, so then you move to radio, BBC Radio 2, and you think you're a bit more sophisticated, and that becomes a bit kind of passe or whatever the word is. And then you go to the wonderful Radio 4, and you can actually learn some stuff on that channel, right? Mm. Now it's got to the stage where when you become enlightened, you, it, you, you, see, you, you, you see the whole system for what it is and Radio 4 just becomes painful to listen to. Um, mm. And it's a shame. It's a shame you can't just get a, a regular radio station without you know, going to the internet that you can just tune yeah. in and... Uh, I don't know why I'm doing that. We don't really, <laughs> really tune, tune in a radio like, well, you kind of can, I suppose, on some. But um, yes, it's interesting times. But uh, let's talk about your story because it's, it's fascinating. I mean, for one thing, Yip Kai Fun is a oh. name everyone will be going, huh? Who? <laughs> Yet to you and I, he's a character that... Uh, formed a seminal moment in, in both of our lives. Yeah. But yeah, certainly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I've just start, started reading a, your, your book, uh, Eating, Eating Smoke. And I, I've got, I've 
and I'm recognizing, I know that, you know, that, that mid nineties time, I, I, at that time or just before then I'd been, I was in a, a unit of the Royal Hong Kong police called a, a emergency unit. And I, and I was one of the platoon commanders of Kowloon West. And, uh, you know, I went there, it was at the start of my second, my second tour. And I was, I was very lucky to get in actually. And it's, it's, it's a good, it was a good unit and, and a good, and a busy region. But, you know, I had a platoon of 70 guys, um, 13 of them NCOs, one station sergeant. Um, and we patrolled, we were the response unit, not, not quite the same as the ARU. You had a guest on from Devon and Cornwall. Was it Harry? Uh, was yeah, Harry, Harry. Harry. Yeah. Yes. Tanya. Yeah, Harry. Tanya. That's it. Tanya. Um, and, in the end, you know, he's, was describing the sort of uh, armed response unit in the UK and how that evolved. And, and of course I was in the UK police before I came out here. Uh, but in that, that time talking about Yip Kai Foon, um, I mean, the story, the story was he, he, he had been arrested and convicted and sent to prison in 89 and uh, he escaped by feigning illness and escaped from the hospital. And then, you know, you'd think, he would disappear and not to be seen. No, he came back in, in vengeance. Um, and there were a number of gangs coming down. I mean, he's, he's a Guan, Guangdong boy. He's a you know, Southern China guy. Um, he got emboldened. Um, and we were battling and we were responding to goldsmith shops. So our job in EU was to respond to the 999 call, the first response to 999. And, and unlike, the, unlike the Royal Hong Kong Police, unlike, or the Hong Kong Police, unlike the UK Police, everyone is armed. All the officers are armed. You go through training school, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're trained in firearms. In fact, um, later on, I, I, I was a, a title, an, an amazing title called Drill and Musketry Instructor. <laughs> it's an incredible title to have in your, on your resume. But anyway, so all officers um, were armed. Um, you know, we carried a 0.38 Smith and Wesson, um, and uh, and and we're trained in how to use it. And so the training improved over my time. But in e EU, well, I was in. So let me go. Let me go from the start. So for for um, for expatriate officers like me, there'd be an intake. Um, we'd be drawn, we'd have to apply. So I was in the Metropolitan Police. I did five years in the Met in uh, um, West London, in Ealing. Uh, and I joined the police when I was 18. And I came out here when I was 23. And I did the, I did the selection um, uh, at Grafton Street in London, and totally separate to the Met. I mean, most of the guys who came out here were not, uh, were not um, police officers. So there were quite a few um, military guys, um, some straight out of university. So he went through this um, selection process, and then, um, you know, you know to, to be an inspector is sort of similar to being recruited as an officer in the in the military. Mm -hmm. Sort of, um, you know, you do this um, the same kind of uh, you know lead, leadership potential um, tests and. Uh, um, and, and that kind of thing. And, and of course, there's a sort of basic education standard. You have to be awful with a map and compass. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and so we, you know, I came out in uh, February 87 with um, nine other expatriates and joined 30 local 
um, probationary inspectors at the training school in uh, Aberdeen, in Wangchukhang in Aberdeen. And that's the start of, start of 10 months training. I mean, it's quite a lot of, it's quite a lot of training before you, you, you go out to your, to go out to your police station. So it's, um, you know, I was a constable in the Met, you know, and I was one of, in my intake, there were a couple of other um, ex, ex-police officers. One was a sergeant in GMP, so Greater Manchester Police. Um, we had uh, two ex-army officers um, and, uh, and the rest were um, graduates straight, straight from university. And then from the local intake, so 30 um, Chinese, they were nearly all from, all from university. There were a couple of guys who went up through the ranks, um, you know, from uh, PC um, to inspector or sergeant to inspector, and they had to go through um, a, a different selection process. So there were 40 in my intake, uh, 10 months. And then we do, an, un, unlike Hendon, we, do, we did firearms training. Um, for us, we did leadership training, you know, getting lost with map and compass in the new territories, that kind of stuff. Um, we we did uh, for us uh, for people like you know for the expatriates we had to learn Cantonese, you know we we our first uh, I think it's eight weeks you know we did <laughs> we had Cantonese you know which is quite interesting because it's a tonal language and our instructor was deaf, so he thought we were all pretty good at it, um, which we weren't, and then the locals um, the, the local education system is is um, is very academic. And so a lot of them have never done things like put up a tent or, you know, sleep outside or do outward bounds type things. And they go off on an eight week outward bounds course um, to improve because all of us have done that kind of stuff, camping and it could be Duke of Edinburgh or, you know, people have been in the military or whatever. The local guys hadn't. So. We, we actually, uh, we, we came together, we did the, uh, and over that time, so we did Cantonese, and then we also did foot drill. Um, we had an ex-Scots guard guy called Willie Fullerton, um, who was the chief drill and musketry instructor. Um, and, and, the, and the drill standard was high. I mean, it was disciplined. Um, the the uh, police constable, or recruit police constables, did uh, drill with a Lee M, old style Lee Enfield with a bayonet on it. Um, uh, we, uh, we wore, uh, most of the time we just wore shorts, boots and shorts, no top, um, and, uh, and a flat cap. And that was our, and when we went into the officer's mess, we put on a, put on a shirt. <laughs> so uniform baggy shorts is pretty much so, the way to this day. I'm getting, I'm getting images of an eight and a half hot mum. It's exactly like that. It's, it looks, the uniform looks like, looks like that. Or used to, and in fact, the police constables used to, you know, or, or the officers used to patrol in shorts, um, pretty much up to the 80s, and then it changed to the sort of safari suit, um, the tailored safari suit that I, I had pretty much through my through my time, a sort of green one in the summer, and uh, a winter uniform which looked pretty much like a UK police officer's um, uniform in, in in the short winter winter months. So we go through that. So it's, I said we leadership drill. Um, there's a lot of academics. Um, uh, you know, I'd done some of it before, but the uh, so there's criminal law and what they call police general orders, which is learning procedures and and so forth. It's pretty pretty dull stuff, but you've got to you've got to learn it. 
And that's tough. And it's all in English. And so it's quite hard on the Chinese officers, you know, because they've got to pass all the exams in their, in a second language. You know, those guys worked all night to, to get through those exams. Um, and we had good, good times, you know, we used to go off on leadership uh, exercises in helicopters and be dumped off in the new, te uh, new territories in Lantau and, you know, there's lots of, I, enjoy, I enjoyed it. There's a lot of PT, uh, much more than the Met. Um, a lot of, um, we used to have to do, uh, I think it's similar to the military uh, annual fitness test, AFT, you know, all the usual sit-ups, press-ups, pull-ups, all those things. And then the uh, one and a half mile run. And, uh, um, yeah, and, and before, you know, I, t I turned up quite fit because I boxed at light heavy in the Metropolitan Police. So I was already quite a, I was lucky that I was, I, I turned up reasonably fit and could run because there's a lot of running. Um, and then, you know, you go through, there's, you know, pretty much like the military, I suppose, there are different stages, you know, you know you've got exams at every stage and you've got to get through and people do get, fail and get turned back and get sent back to England. And then from these, and the, the makeup of the expatriates was pretty much anyone from the Commonwealth. So we had not just um, Brits, but South Africans, Aussies, Kiwis, Canadians, um, you know, and, uh, a disproportionate number of Scottish for some reason. I don't know why that was. That's a well, lot of Scottish. Hong Kong has that connection with Scotland, doesn't it? Because of the, yeah. the, the when you go back to the ancient times, which wasn't all that long ago, they, they formed the um, traders, didn't they? The, the, yeah. the original traders were, were of Scottish. Jardine, Jardines, Jardine Matheson, all that sort of thing. Yeah, all yeah. the old Hongs, all the old trading, trading houses. So there seem to be a lot of um, um, Scottish officers. And then, and then it comes to, um, to, to uh, you know, passing out if, if you've made it that far. And I was, I was, I was lucky to be awarded Baton of Honor, um, which is a kind of, you know, best in your intake thing. I don't think it's quite like King's Badge or Sword of Honor, but some, something along, along those lines. And, uh, and, and I suppose my reward, or I was told, you know, the only sort of reward I could see is I could choose my posting. And so I said, right, I want to go to Marine. Because <laughs> yeah, in the officer's mess one day, I'd read this uh, letter, you know, the South China Morning Post. Used to, before internet and everything, people used to vent their displeasure by writing letters into the South China Morning Post. And, and some lady wrote in complaining that she'd seen a police launch with an expatriate sunbathing and someone water skiing behind and there were cans of beer being thrown over the sides and everything. And I thought, right, that's the job for me. Uh, but when it came to it, my, my, my course instructor said, no, no, you've got you to get a proper job, which is going to upset the, the mariners in the Hong Kong police. <laughs> you know, because it, it was a big, so the, you had a choice of uh, uh, new territories, um, Callum West, uh, new territories north, new territories south, Callum West, Callum East and Hong Kong Island and Marine, Marine Division. Okay. For our, for our friends at home who haven't been in Hong Kong, Hong Kong is essentially an island. Roughly speaking, it's about the size size of a of a city, the whole island. Um, and then to the north of the island, you have the Kowloon Peninsula, um, which comes down in the same way. Say that I'm just looking at the map here. South America comes down. The bottom part of that peninsula is called Kowloon. 
or Kowloon side as the expats refer to it. And the north of, of Kowloon is the new territories and that and they border onto China. So yeah. So it's as essentially, you know, when uh, 97 came up, that was that was a that was the end of the 99 year lease for the territory, the Hong Kong territory north of Boundary Street. So they included the new territories. In fact, Hong Kong Island was ceded to the British in perpetuity. And not a lot of people know that. So it wow. wasn't Hong Kong Island. And it was decided, you know, you remember Margaret Thatcher in the early 80s negotiating with the Chinese um, about what to do when they, the lease for the new territories came up in 97 and, 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 and the rest is history. Um, you know, I will probably talk later, you know, what I think they perhaps should have, sh should have done to, you know, prevent what the position we're in today. But, um, so that's what, that's what happened. I mean, the British could have kept Hong, could have kept it. Um, you know, I'm not going to talk other people know better than me about the politics behind it, but, um, you know, it was, it was decided mostly on the, on the British side, um, that, you know, because it's uh, Hong Kong. You know, I talk about my China China side of what, what I do because I also live in Shanghai. But the the China side, you know, it suited them as a as a planned you know communist country. It suited them having you know Hong Kong on their on their doorstep. It was a doorway, you know. <laughs> they could, but but also there was the you know the great shame, you know, the colonial aspect, and and also amongst you know not just. Um, Chinese, uh, mainland Chinese people, but Hong Kong Chinese people, you know, about, you know, you can't continue with this old style colonial systems. And, and so what happened, happened, you know, handover in 97. But, um, but going back to, you know, we worked, so we pass out and uh, I, I went to um, a division called um, Kowloon City. I don't know whether you, whether you know Kowloon, it's right near where Kaitak Airport was. Okay. So Kaitak Airport. So that area um, was where the, the first the, the station I got posted to as a, I mean, you got to do, you know, a couple of weeks as duty officer, which, which involved double entry bookkeeping in the bail book as far as I could work out. Is that, but, is that anything to do with the wall, walled city? Exactly. So, so that the walled city was within my division. So the first thing I did when I got, when I got, Post, uh, posted to Kowloon City was explore the wall city. Uh, unbelievable. You know, you've seen the movie Blade Runner, mm -hmm. a sort of dystopian future, you know, flashing, sizzling fluorescent lights and dripping water and people all over the place. It was a three-dimensional maze, um, pretty much the same night and day. You couldn't tell if it was, you couldn't tell if it was the, you know, the day or night and, and you had to go around with a torch and there was, there used to be dripping pipes and sparking electrical cables and, and people milling about. Um, one of the things which put me off for life is uh, fish balls. Have you ever eaten them? Yes. Well, they used to make them in there. So it'd be a huge room larger than, you know, this house full from, you know, from the floor, the dirty floor to the ceiling with fishball paste. And it stank to high heaven you, you, uh, for people who, don't know Hong Kong climate you know the summer it's 35 degrees centigrade and 100% humidity I mean it's sticky hot 
um, hot place and and fish uh, fishball based <laughs> fermenting in inside the middle of the wall city is something to behold. <laughs> I mean, it's it's quite um, pungent. Yeah, we should maybe try and get our friends at home to see the picture. It, it this was an absolute phenomenon. This walled city. It it literally was like a walled city of of um, very shoddily constructed tenement type size size buildings at, at least it was yeah. extreme poverty it was rampant i'm gonna guess with triads and it was also where the famous jackie pullinger worked wasn't it she re rescued, yeah that's right she rescued yeah. um people suffering with heroin addiction and she brought them to jesus and, and yeah. she wrote uh, she wrote a very famous book about it i i met her um um a while back i went to have a look at it you know it's all been knocked down and it's a park now in kowloon uh, but there's a museum there and uh that was that was quite interesting but i used to patrol it so the first thing i wander around and it's about 12 stories high so it's like a sort of borg cube <laughs> and around the outside were illegal dentists. So if you didn't have much money, that's where you got your teeth pulled out or your stuff done. And with, with varying degrees of skill. Or, or, um, but that's what I remember, all the dentist shops were around the outside. But you went in inside, and how it evolves is that it was actually a wall, a wall city, the Qing dynasty. Um, so going back in, in history, when the, the Hong Kong police were formed in 1841. Um, native indigenous people uh, were ruled by under Qing, uh, Qing law. I mean, it's quite brutal, you know, the beheadings on beach. You've probably seen those pictures of people being beheaded, pirates and things being beheaded on beaches and stuff. Um, and then the British or the, you know, the, the foreigners, um, and they were, they were um, held to account under British law what it was and how it's evolved over all those times. But the Qing, uh, but the wall city sort of, um, and if I get my, my history right, remained under sort of Qing dynasty law for, for longer than the rest of Hong Kong. So there was a sort of um, myth that criminals could, you know, leg it away from us down the streets of Kowloon and dive in there. And then they've, they've reached, they've reached home. Um, in my time, that wasn't, that wasn't so because we would just chase after them. Now, usually they'd lose us because they knew it. It was so, it was so complicated. They could run to ground and hide. Um, but inside was quite fascinating. There were Qing dynasty um, cannons in, in the, right in the middle if you looked hard enough. And then if you climbed up to the roof, this is the mo one of the most amazing things. So you will remember when you arrived in Hong Kong, you come into Kai Tak and at the last minute, you, the, the plane, the 747, usually coming from Europe, would bank a steep right, right over the top, right over the top of the wall city, and then line up with Kai Tak, uh, whatever it was, runway 31 or whatever it was back in the day. And then land on this runway, which was carved, which was reclaimed land out into the harbor. Mm. Um, and then, you know, come to a halt, hopefully, before it went off the edge. And a couple did go off the edge. I'll tell you a story for when I was in the EOD. And we cut the tail off. But the, uh, but, uh, and, that's, and I used to go up there, you know, on, on patrol, and you could, read, you could read the writing underneath the airplanes as they came across. 
And if we're in the aeroplane, you could see people, as it banked, it seemed as if people were hanging their washing out, oh, <laughs> out the window. Unreal. Literally look out your aeroplane window of, the, of your jumbo jet and you'd see someone putting their washing out ne next, next to you. It's almost like you could, if the window wasn't there, you could reach out and, and touch them. And wasn't there that rumour that the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, had planned to take down a British Airways jumbo jet from Kowloon using a, an RPG smuggled into the country. I don't know how legitimate that story is, but... Well, an RPG getting into Hong Kong, I'll tell you later, because I was in an EOD card. I, I was a, um, a card of bomb disposal officer from 98 to 97. Um, and in and there were an assortment of various weapons that got into got into Hong Kong. About that story, I've heard it. I, I can't say I know much more about it. You know uh, whether whether they did it, whether they did it or not, um, or whether they were planning it and how far it how far it got through. Um, uh, but you know, from say from you know, you could probably hit it with a stick. <laughs> from, the, from the top of the walled city. I mean, it was so close. You know, the wheels, the undercarriages have obviously come down and you could see right inside, you could see the writing and everything. It was so close. And, you know, the way they peeled, you know, the, the wing came down and they turned right. And of course, in those days, now Kowloon is built up because the airport is here on this island where I live. Um, but at uh, Teplak Kok, um, the north side of Lantau is all reclaimed land and they've got two runways and, and, and so forth and a bridge going to Macau and all sorts of things. But back then, uh, you know, that was, it was sort of, you know, Kaitek was bolted onto Kowloon City. And Kowloon City was a very, was a very in interesting place, you know, during, during my time there. Um, uh, you know, I, I think on my, on, my, on my day of attachment, I, I just happened to stumble across a burglary in progress in, a, in one of the restaurants um, and my Cantonese wasn't great but I heard on the radio and I literally this is what happened it came over the radio the name of this street I looked up and I'm underneath the street sign I'm going oh <laughs> actually on site and I, I and it was lit two or three shops down I looked through the the glass and there's two people rolling around on the ground um, inside the shop and so I went in and beat up both of them which meant that one of them got arrested and uh, the, the 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 victim of the burglary didn't seem too bothered about it he was quite happy that we'd arrested the burglar that's typical hong kong so oh thank you very much sir blimey yeah do we, i remember do that know, so on my do we know which triad organization ran the the ward city uh it's, you, well you you mentioned in your book the fourteen fourteen k and fourteen k had had their patch and they were certainly around in in, in Kowloon, so, but there were lots. The Sunyon were the the most common, I think, in uh, in, in my day at least. The Sunyon yeah. seemed seemed to be, especially when I uh, I, I later transferred to Jim Sajoy. So we had uh, um, Kowloon East and um, Jim Sajoy East, where all the nightclubs were. It was Club Vol it used to be called Club Volvo, and it became Club Boss, and the, you know those big nightclubs in. Mm. in, in, in. Um, so, so there was Sunny on the Warhop top. Um, there was but 14K and Sunny on were the sort of 
prevailing bad bad boys. But there's triads, there's all sorts of different triad groups and they have their little fiefdoms and there's certain things they get up to, you know, usually prostitution, gambling, drugs, um, and um, protection rackets, you know, extortion, you know, providing protection for, you know, um, for various shops. Now they're, now they're all high tech involve all, everything you think of from money laundering to fraud, corruption, you know, cryptocurrency scams that the whole the whole the whole lot um uh, but the, the try you know when i was at training school we I, when i before i went out there i tried to un understand what what the what triads were you know in my mind i thought there was sort of like a mafia mafia group um and it's not like, it's not structured like that um, they would have these office holders in in within each triad group They'd recruit kids through the schools, you know, the usual way. Um, you know, it, just, it became, I mean, the background of triads is is really uh, a, a national, uh, a nationalistic militia, really, back in the day. Uh, and there's still some sympathy for them among, you know, members of the public. It's not sort of like the mafia. For instance, I lived in Sheko. You know, do you know where Sheko is on Hong Kong Island? It's the far, the peninsula on the... Um, far southeast of Hong Kong Island. It's a sort of beach yeah, place, quite a nice uh, little village, little rural village on Hong Kong Island. Um, they have a, you know, a local triad group and, you know, I, I, I knew who they were and they were fairly benign. You know, they sort of sorted out traffic problems and disputes and generally resolved things and in a lot of ways did a better job than the police. Um, it wasn't the sort of, you know, dark underside that you you describe in your you know that happened in Wan Chai and Jim C and you know those those you know Yun Long and those sort of places mm. um, so there's a, a broad spectrum and then there's certain traditional you know straw sandal and dragon head and various you know straw sandal would be the administrative officer of it and then it'd be various mm. um, sort of warrior um, positions and then there'd be support almost like almost like in the in the military mm. and it's almost like a regiment so each one is kind of like a regiment you know they have a traditional area where they they cover um and there would be there would be some structure and discipline internal discipline um uh, recruiting various um and things like that is sort of like a club so it's it's it, so we were taught about them and some of the ceremonies, you know, the, the tattoos and the, because um, to this day, triad tattoos are illegal. If you have one, you can get arrested. And um, triad poems, tr reciting triad things. Um, and then there would be, you know, the initiation ceremonies, which to my uneducated sort of, you know, not um, a view of things look sort of Buddhist. You know, they look like yeah. Buddhist ceremonies and, with, and you know, you a lot of parallels with the Masonic initiation. A lot of, you know, there's there's obviously selection and uh, you know, recruitment selection and training. Uh, you've got to do. Yeah, you've got to learn. You've got to learn certain rituals like like Freemasons do. They learn, you know, the craft and secrets and stuff like that. And um, so do so do the um, so do so do triads. Um, and, uh, but in, you know, the ones that we'll go on to Yip Kai Foon later, but, but, uh, whether I don't even know if you, 
I was, yeah, he was a, he was a, a, a triad from, or he was uh, given a triad um, title. But there were a lot of, uh, during that time when the goldsmith robberies were going on, I think there were different groups. I mean, I, Yip Typhoon is identified in as a famous picture of standing in Nathan Road with a Type 56, which is um, Chinese P uh, People's Liberation Army AK-47. Standing there in that pose, you've probably seen the, the uh, picture. I, I, standing. Should I just yeah. tell, tell you for the benefit of our friends at home? So, I've been to Hong Kong, I think, three, maybe four times. The very first time I got a cheap indulgence flight on British Airways through, through the military, so I paid 30 quid to fly over. Flew over on my own because I couldn't get anybody to go with me. Snuck into the uh military barracks over there hms tamar using my id card and then the lads the marines over there who were all um riding speedboats or coxing speedboats to take out the drug traffickers and the illegal immigrants they put me up in in their one of their rooms and cut a long story short i'm wandering down the road one day and suddenly all this automatic gunfire goes up in fact first i'm looking at these jewelry shop jewelry shops and they're exquisite in hong kong all the gold and red facades it's really quite something to see it looks you know the sort of enterprise you'd imagine donald trump would want to want to want to own and promote all that gold and and all that sort of plaza-ness and um so i'm wondering why have the security guards many of whom I, I seem to remember were Nepalese former Gurkhas, why are they carrying shotguns? It was extreme. I mean, you never would see that in, in the UK, um, certainly not back in the day. I don't know if things have changed now. I don't think they have. And as I'm pondering why have these guys all got shotguns, all this automatic rifle fire went off. I think in my book, I thought I was in Western District, but I think it was actually in Kowloon. It's just when I wrote the book, I couldn't remember 25 years back where exactly I, I was. But um, so, I got, so I went back to the barracks that evening and I'm watching the news. And lo and behold, this character, Yip Kai Fun, has been rampaging down the street, robbing the jewellery stores with his AK-47. He was intercepted by the, the armed Hong Kong police a running gun battle then ensued in which I believe one pedestrian or one shopper was shot dead. And um, my gosh, there it all is on the news. And it wasn't until I wrote my book, like I say, 15, 20 years later, that somebody wrote to me and said, oh, Chris, that was that chap's name is Yip Kai Fun. And they sent me a YouTube video. And I was like, that was the that was the footage um, I saw, Rupert, you know? Yeah. Well, the funny thing is that was actually videotaped, you know, in the early days, in the early 90s. It's not like today where everyone's got a you know, video on their, on their phone. Someone had a Sony video camera and, 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 and took it. So that guy, which was in the newspaper, I'm told by my, my colleagues who are in the know, you know, that regional crime units and those those guys who investigated that stuff at the time that wasn't Yip Kai Foon but it was part of his gang and I think that guy actually got shot later that day um, and uh, that that particular guy 
and Yip Kai Foon obviously didn't because he he, um, he he carried on. So just to go back to you know to to the, to the you know the chronology. So it's, you know I went to Jim Sajoy as a patrol subunit commander. That means you're the inspector of a shift, you know, regular uniform shift. And uh, I wanted to, I very much wanted to get into the uh, counter-terrorist team. Uh, it's called Special Duties Unit. And it was set up because um, the British SAS are in the UK and to be deployed to do black, you know, CT stuff would be, um, you know, it's not going to work. So they trained up. So we went through the sector. A, a similar early stage, two, two week, horrific selection process. Um, and, uh, and so I was, I was getting fit and prepared for that in 1988 and I'm still in, and, and I did it, I did it. And I completed the, I completed the selection, but I didn't get selected, um, which I think to this day is unfair. Uh, there was three of us left standing at the end and two got um, um, selected. And I didn't, and that's, that's the way it is. And, and, I, and I'm told, because I worked for the head of CTU later on as in the private sector, is because of my final interview, I said I suffered from claustrophobia. So after all that, you know, lot running around and, I mean, they did the phobia tests. Uh, you, you've probably got an idea what they, what they, what they do. I think it's they, more, they, more likely, Rupert, you're, you're too handsome to go undercover. <laughs> Well, SDU was a sort of, um, they, I, I was a bit, um, I was pretty disappointed not to get in. I said, look, I'll do the phobia tests again. And, and I did, and I did them again the following year. I, did, I still didn't. But in, in the meantime, I, I was supposed to have done police tactical unit, which I hadn't done. And all officers have to, all officers have to do PTU. So the guys you're seeing on the, on the TV, the frontline guys in the riot will be most likely police tactical unit supported by emergency unit and then supported by people who used to be in having been trained and they form a company um, or that all they're part of um, sent from a division um, to support so there you and so PTU was without doubt the best job I did in the police um, you're one uh, you'd be going um, you do your training as a platoon commander uh, and you and you do all the all the so you do all the training first, and then you get forty PCs who are your who come in, and then you're their platoon officer, and you train them. So it's not like, like they're trained by the there are PTU staff, but the PTU staff have trained the platoon officers and the platoon NCOs first, and then the PCs turn up, and then you train you train them. And so a company I don't know what it is in the uh, in the uh, um, in, in the army, but a company will be four platoons of 40, made up of roughly 40 people, and, and there'll be columns and sections. Very so, so the columns, um, uh, the sections will be, um, the first one is used to be shields, and then the second one will be smoke, so a uh, one and a half inch federal gun with a, a smoke round in, pretty similar to what they're using last, you know, still on the streets. The third, the third section would be a baton round. It used to be a wooden baton, which is supposed to fire on the ground and it bounces up and takes your kneecaps out or stops you doing what you're not supposed to be doing. And the fourth section was a firearm section. So it'd be Colt AR-15, so 556, you know, high velocity weapon and shotguns. And the shotguns in those days had, um, used to have, 
number one, number two shot and, and something called um, um, rifled slug, which is basically a big lump for supposed to be for taking lots out and things. And that's all we had in, in those days. And the reason for the uh, number, number two shot is, is you know, it's, um, I mean, you could call up number four section to, to, shoot, to shoot rioters. And the idea in the Hong Kong police, unlike when I was in the Met, you know, and then the Met, I was, I was at Broadwater Farm when Blakelock got hacked. I was not in district support unit. I was in a, I was in a police station and we got called up on the late turn, as they call it, or B shift in Hong Kong. And we formed up a, you know, a transit van and went up there into hell, chaos. And in those days, it's just a shield. You know, you lock the shields together and you, you're close to the rioters and they're pummeling you and firing stuff at you. And it's just mayhem all night. Horrible. Nightmare. It's anyway, funny. so in Hong Kong, it's different. Yeah, sorry. No, just, just a point. It's funny. When I did that in the Marines, well, so we trained uh, for the riot squad, obviously, for when we went to Northern Ireland. And we got quite a few riots while we are in Northern Ireland. Don't ever remember me having to go out with the shield, but we did go out to, to sort of quell riots, or quash riots. But it's so funny in your head, that person, they really are the enemy and you're so, you're so self-righteous. You know, there's, there's, no, there's no thinking of it from, from two perspectives. So well, not at all. Not at all, because we in, in London, going back to the London days, so we had Brixton riots, we had the, the miners' strike. I went up um, five times to the miners' strike, never saw anything, slept most of the time, and went out drinking it when I wasn't sleeping, and uh, on the miners, because you did 12, 16 hours a day, so there was all this, you know, people wanted to go up because they, they made overtime money. But those London ones, uh, the whopping the whopping dispute, you know, the newspaper, um, one we were out there, uh, Broadwater Farm. Um, Acton used to go up every now and again. Acton, I was at Ealing, so Acton was the the district next to. Um, it's crazy, crazy days. You know, you just stood there and just got things pummeled at you. I just still to this day, there, there were no firearms. That you know, there's you know, there there were firearms teams back in those days, but you know, they were never mm-hmm. never deployed. And the and I, I presume there was. Federals. I saw them on. We used to train at uh, Hounslow in West London, and there'd be all these. Not like it's not like the close quarter battle range we we trained on in Hong Kong. It was like a like a mini, um, like a mini villa in like a, a mock up town. You know, you do room entries and tortoises and go in, and 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 the enemy are throwing wooden bricks at you and petrol bombs. I remember forever there were a lot of petrol bombs, and you know, we used to put the shield down and. The visor, tuck it, tuck it here. Otherwise, the the flames came up, took you, mm. took your whiskers off, and uh, and that's that was that, that was the, the the stuff we did in we did in London. And London was, I always think it was violent. It was very violent in my day, um, you know. And we were unarmed, and we got and and it wasn't not uncommon to get a, a beat getting getting beaten up. I got beaten up many times um, in London back in those days. PC Keith uh, Blakelock. Yeah. Sorry, but just for the for our younger viewers, PC Keith Blakelock was um, an officer who was um, ordered onto the Broadwater Farm Estate when when rioting was occurring in in the Afro Caribbean community there. So the estate was, a, a, I'm guessing, it was blocks of 
flats probably yeah. probably a lot of sort of you know on the border of poverty and this sort of thing a lot of friction with with the met police and and the residents and during this um disturbance this big huge disturbance possibly a a, a a riot i can't remember pc blake lot got decapitated um set about by a by a gang of i'm gonna assume men but who knows and I think someone took a machete and finally after being stabbed to death, they chopped, chopped his head off. It was when I was a kid, that was quite a thing. Um, I can still see his face now on the front of every, every news, every newspaper. Mm. Shock. No, it was, hor- it was, it was horrific. And, and when, when our cereal arrived, it's like a war, a war zone, you know, the burning, the smell, um, chaos the the radio was the thing that was disturbing because there were not peak calls for urgent assistance coming up and and you know so in the met you've got two radio systems one from new scotland yard you know we called mp and then you had your divisional radio and then all the radios were going up and the um, information room at new scotland yard was trying to control things and the various i i know things have moved on it's a long time ago it was, it, was, it was terrible, and and what I understand, well, what I know, um, uh, Keith Blakelock and and his group were trying to escort um, uh, or protect firemen who were trying to put out a fire, uh-huh. and uh, he on when they got they got ambushed and they retreated, and th- th- these are those sort of um, high rises with um, um, lots of stair- stairways in between. And in between uh, the the high rises was a lot of grass, and there was one on a slope on a, on the grass. Uh, the grass he slipped. I think he, he he got set on. I think it's about ten in the evening because we got there just after it happened. We got formed up after the uh, the, the late, I was on a late turn at Ealing, and we formed up because I had been on the district support unit um, before then, um, as as we all had to do. And so the DSU trained, so riot trained officers were all called up from the, from the reliefs, you know, the foot patrol guys to form up um, extra serials. So a serial is basically two transit vans, inspector, sergeant in each one and PCs like, like myself. And, we, 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 and I was in Ealing, so we got there. It was not far to Tottenham and we went up there in blues and twos. And even before getting, you could see the piles of smoke going up. It was terrible. And then when the radio calls came out and all the sort of, you know, gossip amongst us, because we're all, you know, standing behind, uh, getting out of the out of the vans or getting back in or getting out or redeployed or move over here or go, have to go there. Um, you know, the rumors went along the line that one officer had gone down and, uh, you know, can you, you know, and, and, and then later things unfolded and we found out about the, the brutal way in which he was murdered. Mm. Shot must have must have just had a shock effect through the force. It was a you know at the same time Yvonne Fletcher uh, just a little bit before I think eighty four Yvonne Fletcher had been murdered. Um, I think one of the is it the Libyan Libyan embassy. Mm. 
um, yeah, it was, it was crazy, crazy, crazy times. Um, you know, the Met was sort of, you know, from lurch from, and I spent a lot of my time um, on area cars. So the, um, the, the, the SD1 Rovers back in those days. And I was an operator. You know, I yearned to be a class one driver and charge, drive one of those at 100 miles an hour down the wrong side of Ealing Broadway. But uh, I was the operator and, you know, used to... You know, work the, work the radio, and uh, and we, the stuff we you know we respond. That was the those those. I think I think maybe it's the same today that they have area cars. But I was on a car called X Ray Two, which was Ealing's. Um, X Ray One was uh, Acton. X Ray Three Southall, and we we could go on to others other people's ground, and we just went from one crazy thing to the other. And that was that was it. And then you know I'd I'd sort of got to twenty three. It's either I was thinking of special branch. Um, I failed the first exam, um, and and I was I was thinking to go back and do it again. Um, and then there's promote. You know that five year mark. You're thinking of promotion to sergeant. Um, and uh, and and actually, you know, there's a guy who used to be a professional. He was on my relief. He used to be a professional footballer, and he got he was playing football for the Met, and he'd gone up to Hong Kong and told me all the stories, and that was it. <laughs> I applied, applied him immediately. I mean, after all the, the stories seed, he told, the seed was planted. The it's, seed was planted. What a special place it is, anyway. Oh, it, it, in incredibly and again i'll say this for the benefit of people that that, that don't know the history of hong kong the Brit, the british traders in the days gone by you used hong kong as a as um because it formed the perfect harbor they used to park their trading ships there and they'd bring opium from india and they'd put the opium in into the mainland and they'd take silver in return, which caused an enormous problem. And I think it caused, caused uh, a series of war called the Opium Wars. And finally, they managed to get the, the I'm going to say the emperor of China, I don't know who exactly was, but to cede Hong Kong Island, or to cede Hong Kong Island and the new territories to the British on this hundred year lease that Rupert mentioned. And of course, when they signed the Forever. paper, Forever, it was ceded forever. Oh, okay. Hong Kong Island was oh, ceded the island, forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's only later the new territories. Well, obviously in uh, when was it? Uh, 1898. So it'll be the 1830s, 1820s when when the Opium Wars. So is it uh, opium for tea? That's what it is. Tea. The British couldn't pay for their tea with silver anymore. Um, so they decided to pay for it with opium, which they, you know. It was it was it was an addiction at that time, and 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 to an extent, continued to be you know as opium formed number three heroin number four and so 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 forth. And um, that's quite yeah. something. In it's quite something in itself, Rupert. That the opium dens. Did did you did you come across any of them in your day? Yeah. Well, later on, later on after I I was um, I was in a task force as um, in Chi Wan San, and all we did is kick down doors. For drugs, complete waste of time. It's yeah. just you know, I know if you know, I, I have a, I have a later on. I've got a, you know, I did a, a degree in criminology, and uh, you could write essays about decriminalization of drugs and blah 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 blah. blah you know, get easy, you know, all that sort of stuff. And uh, it, you know, I saw it firsthand. What a, 
I could go on for hours and hours about drugs in Hong Kong. It's just, uh, you know, what we would in that task force. So we would get an informant to find out where there's a packing or a distribution center. You know, they used to put the op- uh, the um, heroin, number three heroin into, or number four in those days, into straws. See it at each end. Of the day. And uh, we would, we would then, or I would plan a raid, kick down the door and arrest <laughs> powder stuff, stuff going out of the windows, down lavatories, all, all that stuff. And then uh, arrest, arrest, you know, the guy, um, interrogate them, find out if you can where they got their stuff from. And he went on and on and on. He's just, I mean, these estates were awful. You know, I don't, you've ever seen them as, you know, I'd be on it if I was had to live in it, I think. Oh. It just, uh, when, when just, you, yeah, when you go into some of those outlying, I'll say villages, but it gives it the wrong impression in your mind, but they're just basically blocks of flats that just ugly and, and a lot of tiny, fun. tiny, tiny boxes with metal, almost like prison cells, you know, and there's all sorts of things. And, and it was rough. It was rough for people. You know, when I, when I first, you know, when I was, in those early days, there were still the squatter huts on the on the hillsides, you know, from the people who've escaped China. You know, I had I, I, in PTU we responded to we had the Vietnamese boat boat people, the camps, and we responded to a riot, a huge riot at High Island um, camp, you know, just north and south, killing each other, you know, with homemade swords. <laughs> it was literally, it was crazy. Um, so there was, you, you, got, you know, Hong Kong's been through a hell of a lot, a lot of change, a lot of things over the, over the years. People forget, you know, it's this recurring theme through life now that people forget the history, you know, how turbulent things are and how things became the way they are. And, you know, in a way, you know, Hong Kong's been built on, um, you know, turmoil and drugs trade and um, refugees you know, refugees from the Cultural Revolution back in the day. It's had its own riots in 1967, big riots in Hong Kong, which, you know, it used to be the Hong Kong police. And then after 67, um, and the Queen bestowed royal, the affixed royal to the Hong Kong police in 67. And then the royal was taken off in 97. And now they're back to Hong Kong police again. But it's, yeah, you forget what, what, a, what a turbulent time. I mean, it's a fa- absolutely fascinating place to have spent time especially to have been in the colonial days you know to be the last of the colonial colonial police sort of thing i'm so happy rupert that i was first there in 92 and it was obviously not not a very different place to but but the 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 landscape the architecture was obviously very different the the culture seemed so much uh, richer there all the etiquette and the superstition and the cuisine and yeah and uh, the triads of, of obviously were more sort of a you know more on street level as it's all gone all gone to sort of designer crime now the straw yeah, it's a, yeah. yeah it's got it's you know all those bright flashing lights the you know the neon lights yeah. and and they have them now you know they have lasers and but if you go, you know, I also live in Shanghai. I mean, that's that waterfront is puts puts Hong Kong to shame. I mean, they, you know, Pudong waterfront with three three D dimensionals, 
you know, patterns in the sky and absolutely, absolutely incredible. I don't think people realize what China, the first tier cities, Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, you know, Guangzhou, what they're like, how high tech they are compared to, you know, I've traveled extensively in the States. You just can't believe it. It's, this is why all this thing, all this stuff in the press about China, just I just shake my head. I, they just don't understand it. What, what's, what's, your, what's your interpretation then, Rupert, of China, with re, with respect? To <laughs> well, I mean, going going forward a bit, I, I, you know, I went into forensic accounting and investigation after I left the police, and then I and then I had enough. I just said I can't do it. And I went to university in Beijing to study Mandarin. You know, I, I thought I've got to learn it, and the only way to learn it is to immerse myself in. To immerse me. I did a few courses and ter- was terrible, didn't learn anything. And then I survived the sin. Resign, start afresh, student, middle aged student in Beijing, what could go wrong? And uh, I threw myself into it. And, you know, I'm not fluent, but I'm pretty good. And I learned to read and write it and traveled extensively around China, made a lot of friends, lived in a monastery in Yunnan, um, learning Tai Chi Chuan and all this stuff. Had a great, great time. Great, great two years of my life not 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 wasted an investment really for what i what i do today because i think that going back to china i think people don't realize you know 1.4 billion people so one in five people on the planet is chinese mm. uh, you know it's going to be the number one economy that's what the, the tension is at the moment it will be the number one economy in the world um you've still got half you still got half who are peasants and then you've got another 700 thousand plus who are middle middle class now i mean in the last 30 years um people have not only you know come out of poverty or half of them at least but thriving i mean you could say there's three four hundred the population of america and europe who are middle class in china and and i say middle class meaning they have disposable income and you know they can buy cars and go on foreign holidays and all that stuff and that's happening now that's at the, at the stage and then you've got the rich and you've got the super rich and then you've got the jeff bezo rich that you never hear about i mean serious serious wealth and then you've got a whole other, well is this communism or is it a stage you know you go through capitalism to get to communism or whatever i mean it's it's a planned economy it's got one one party things get done you know they say right we need a canal bringing water from the south to the north, um, they just make it. And then in the UK, they're going on about HS, whatever it is, HS2, and a, you know, who's in this arguments and you know, the budget slipped and blah, 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 and what do we want the environmental impact or mm. is there any benefit to it? China, they go, right, the, the south is wet, the north is dry, build an enormous canal, send it <laughs> And they do it. Mm. And the cities go up, I mean, there's a lot of bad things. You know, I don't like the cruelty. I don't like the corruption. I don't like uh, the animal cruelty, the environmental things. You know, I don't care for that. But on the other side, um, it's a fascinating, fascinating place to spend time. And, you know, you get a, I've just got a little insight into the history and culture and the people. You know, it's such a big country and the cities. I mean, Shanghai, well, there's 20, 25 million people in that one city. <laughs> it's ridiculous. How's, how's it going to be? Because 
When I was there 20 years ago, everybody had a bicycle. There was a rarity to own a car. Yeah. Now it sounds like everybody's not just buying one car, but they're going to move on to buying their second car. How, how does that put us along with all the industrialization with respect to pollution? Oh, it's terrible, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's it, the, the, you know, on one side, there's the benefit of pulling people out of poverty and their, you know, their development, their economic development. They make everything there. I mean, the phones we're using and you go to Walmart or Target in the US, about 99% of it is made in China and making all the stuff. And all these factories, I'm, I'm often working in them, you know, investigating fraud and corruption for US clients or European clients. Or but but it's, 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 it's uh, yeah, it has an impact. Mm. I mean, they... I think I just read today that China has said in 2050 it's 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 you know it's pledged to be carbon carbon neutral, and there's a lot of people saying, oh well, they just can just say that they probably won't, but I bet they do. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the electric cars and stuff and things, you know, solar panel. Um, you know, what do, what do we need now? We need batteries that last longer. All the Elon Musk type stuff that we're pretty familiar with, all the things that he's trying to do. Solar panels, battery life, um, you know, renewable energy, wind, um, sea turbines, and all that—they're doing. They're doing it. There's huge areas where where they're doing it. The university I went to, which is called uh, Tsinghua University in Beijing, it's a science museum. You know, super, super, super smart guy. I mean, I went there learning Mandarin. I was, you know, probably the thickest guy in within the walls, but definitely. But they were really so, you know, I, I, I had lunch, you know, practiced my Mandarin with these, these um, st you know, students who were the best of the best of the best of the best. And some of them have never met anyone better than them in their life before they went to university and they're studying, you know, sort of nuclear physics or, or, or some sort of, you know, you know high-end engineering degrees, you know, and it's it, it's 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 surprising, and and yeah, I can see the uh, the you know the criticism. I can sort of understand the politics behind it, you know, between America and China. Um, but I bet behind the scenes, everyone's trying to trade. Oh, trade wars. They're trading. It's trading behind the politics, which keeps yeah. all the and all us the, lot, Behind you know. the politics and behind the scenes. You'll find the Babylonian money mafia controlling <laughs> the whole damn show. Gonna have to look at that one. It's interesting, Rupert, because I think it's hard for people here who haven't had the experience of going out into that part of the world to, to really understand. This was a country that was behind a great wall for thousands of years. My jog, my history's not good, but a, but a long time it was shielded off from the West with an ocean one side and, you know, this, this wall the other side and an enormous mountain range um, to the north. Well, it's the Mongolia, isn't it, to the north? It's, so you've got mm. the, the, the Himalayas sh shielding it here, a huge desert to the north. And the people lived in peasantry, for all of this time being dictated to by, by these dynasties that uh, obviously 
shielded them from even further from the outside world and 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 this kind of thing and when you when you think of it yeah yeah. sorry sorry chris no i was just getting to rupert that we just when i was young i was quite naive i thought oh chinese people they're they're just chinese people with a yellowy skin and and a different eyes we're we're all the same my experience in hollywood uh, in hong kong hollywood haven't been there yet. <laughs> Hollywood <laughs> Road. <laughs> Hollywood Road, yes, Hong Kong. Um, but my experience there, part of the reason it hurt me so much was to get to a certain uh, length time in my stay there when I realised, oh gosh, we are so different. And the... I don't know, I'm just going to have to say this. I'm sorry if it sounds rude, but the Hong Kong Chinese were so much more animalistic than our, and I'm not saying England's perfect, and that's not what I'm saying here, folks. I'm just saying we are very developed in England because we've had culture from all around the world for hundreds of years through our, through our trading and our invasions and our occupations and this kind of thing. And you're talking a country with six billion people the vast majority of whom still believe that powdered powdered rhino horn is good for your sex life and the reason i'm saying this is you've got to put development alongside this mentality um it's like my friend said to me ages ago he'd been in bangkok and he went chris bangkok pollution ha they don't give a over there it's it's you know, drink, chuck that in. There's, there's no. So I would say, uh, I, I hope the government have this great plan, and I hope they have the ability to implement it on on onto this mindset. Um, uh, yeah, I, uh, and it, and again, if people think I'm being extreme, no, I've met people traveling through. The places that we're talking about, like uh, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, that saw babies doped up and laying in begging bowls, some of them with their legs broken so that they couldn't crawl away, right? This is, mm. my friend was yeah. on a train in China, you might have heard me say this, the police came on board, grabbed a sus- suspected pickpocket, no, no trial or nothing, just shot him on the, in the head on the platform right just trying to sh- to highlight here very different different mindset and and i'm not saying you know i'm not saying it should be the same as ours or or that we're better or anything like that just just um, making the point that wow if all of those six billion people want their first car and then they want a second car and then they want their disposable mcdonald's and you know who's setting the example there and they want to throw all that plastic and 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 rubbish into the oceans we would have a serious problem i think uh yeah i mean it's some of the worst things i've seen are there but also some of the you know the the best i mean some of the countryside some super smart people there but some real idiots too i mean some really nasty in the, you know, selfish, I mean, like the dog, the dog meat festival in, where, where is that place? Uh, 
you know, I, I, I just find I can't come to terms with that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, the, you know, the, the animal torture yeah. as well. It was the same in, in yeah. Hong, Hong Kong. If you're a cat, it's just hit, hit that cat, smack it around the head and kill it, chuck it, wet, chuck it away and laugh. There's, there was no value on, on not, of course, it's not everybody, but, but this was a thing. Um, the other thing as well, when I, when I worked as a, you get to this part in my book, Rupert, when I got the job as DJ in China, my first, um, when I went for the interview for the job, my Hong Kong manager who managed this huge nightclub on the mainland, um, I, I took the slow boat over there, hopped into this Mercedes. Um, I'm chatting to this manager and I said, is there, so is there much crime in China? He went, ah, opened his jacket. He's got his Smith and Western in there. Lifts the flap of the driver. He's got his Beretta. And he said, um, Quissa, they call me Quissa. He said, if you get the job, Mr. Mr. Wong here will be your bodyguard. And I'm like, ah, Mr. Lee, I, I'm, a, I'm a former Royal Marine. I, I, I don't need a bodyguard. He said, no, Chris. In China, Chinese criminal kill you first, then see if you have money. <laughs> like, basically, mm. you know, they don't give a you know what. Um, Again, I'm not, I'm not generalizing here. I'm just giving specific examples of, of my own experience. There's, there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot of, um, it's such a huge, huge country. There's so many different aspects to it. I mean, if you go into Shanghai now and, and say eating dog meat, they will be um, horrified. 99.99999% of people will be absolutely horrified. I mean, all kind of, you know, dressed up poodles and, tutus and stuff you know and you know they're absolutely so you've got that side the rhino horn you you say i i got involved in a little bit of you know in, intel work on rhino horn distribution channels and the, the rhino horn issue is there's always going to be a market always you'll never educate you can educate how are you going to, to because already 99.999 percent of chinese think rhino horn is just ground up fingernails that's what most Chinese think. But that small fraction is still a huge number to, you know, to create a market. And they're not, it doesn't necessarily mean that that small percentage is, is, um, is, is um, ignorant. They just want it the same way as having the $10,000 bottle of, you know, fine French wine or whatever to show off or to show face or, whatever. Um, and, and the implications of that is that if it carries on in that rate with the, you know, with the value on a, on a rhino horn, they'll be extinct. I mean, there's certain species of rhino have gone, uh, are extinct. You know, I have one life in South Africa too. You know, I have a house in, in, in South Africa and there's right in the, on the Southern tip. And, uh, you know, I've got friends who've got, you know, Africana friends, you've got game reserves and I, I sort of got in my, you know, hiding rhinos, hiding rhinos from the poachers, moving them around, you know, into free, um, to free state or wherever they go from Limpopo and moving them around to try and protect them, to keep them alive, you know, to keep the bloodline alive. It's terrible. When you think of the poverty there and there's, a, you know, an animal wandering around with more than it's, you know, the, the, the horn is worth more than it's uh, gram per gram than gold. 
is so expensive. And then it goes through the gangs and they have these, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm not going to. There's certain provinces of China which will specialize in this and, and they will have front shops, front businesses in South Africa, for instance, or, or Zim, Zimbabwe or, or Botswana. And then, then it's the you know, same as smuggling any illicit substance. There are ways of doing it. I mean, there's going through, hiding it, concealing it, ship, everything you can think. All the all ways you can think of being trying to get it through. And, uh, you know, I, I've scratched my head about it and I got involved in it. And I got, you know, in the early days was thought, well, what can I do to help in this situation and get involved in the con uh, conservancy groups and the, the things like this that you all read about. And I've come to conclude the only thing is, is unless, unless they, you know, are farmed in the same way as sheep and cattle, they're going to, they're going to die. Unless you do that, that's what I've come to. I know lots of people disagree with this point of point of view, but unless they have value mm. and you can protect them and you've got, it goes all the way down to, you know, the, you know, the value chain and you raise them, look after them. They have value. It's worth raise and um, the security for them and blah, 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 all the way through to, because the idea that you can stop the demand with a China, which is in its ascendancy in wealth. So that small percent, as small as it is, they will, they will, um, they will clear them out. They'll be, they'll become extinct. I mean, I met this Chinese guy and I had a little bit of a ruck over tiger penises. Believe it. And I said, what happens if you, you had, you ate, you know, the penis of the last tiger on the planet. And he said, I'll be very lucky. Yeah. I mean, when you're dealing with that mindset, what can you, what can you do? How are you going got, to win? You've got that thing as well, haven't you? Is that, that in the game reserves, they they thought it would be a good idea to we'll take a chainsaw and chop the horn off the rhino. Yeah. And then the poachers just said, "Well, we'll kill that rhino anyway, because we might spend a whole day tracking." these tracks only to find it's a rhino with no horn. That's going to waste our time. So it's, uh, it's a well, they, they, they are taking, you know, they thought I might affect the behavior and so forth. Ah, it's not my area of expertise, but, um, but they do cut the, cut the horn in places like Namibia and, and, and those sort of places where they roam around wild still in parts of Namibia. I, I spent a lot of time in Namibia. Um, but the poachers will still, you know, the, the nub, it still goes down deep into the um, into the into the skeleton, mm. and they'll still kill it just to get that nub nub out as well, mm. and it goes off. And it's worth it's worth so much. And uh, I think going back going back to China and all those all those things, you know, you say, ah, oh, well, they'll become enlightened and they're not going to eat do these things and cruelty to animals and and, uh, and no, it's not it's not going to change. Not in, not in, I can't see in several generations, it's not going to, that, that mindset is not going to change. I mean, if you look at Tai, if you go to Taiwan, have you been to Taiwan? Is that Taiwan? funny enough? It's the one place in Asia. I think it's the only country in Asia I've not been to. Well, I don't know. 
could get myself in trouble here, but I always think Taiwan is where China, China behaving well, responsibly. You know, it's got a democracy. It's got, um, you know, it, it's it's cultured. Um, it's got art. It's 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 a great place. Fantastic food, lovely people. You speak Mandarin, sort of <laughs> slower, so I can understand. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a very, it's a very, very nice place, Taiwan. Very, very nice place. And, and the, I, I enjoy going to Taiwan. It's a beautiful island, you know, mountains all the way down the backbone of it. I paraglide there a lot. So I go there on a motorcycle and go around look for things and eat. Wow. I enjoy it very much. And, uh, and, and Taiwan, it could be, you know, you know, there's the, the risk that China's going to you know, be so powerful, it'll just absorb, get, take back Taiwan, which it lays, lays claim to. And, uh, and, and essentially it is part of China, historically or whatever, however you want to slice and dice it, it is. Um, but, you know, they, you've got the situation. I mean, it's a, com it's a, complex, it's a complex situation. I think it's, uh, it's got to be treated really, really carefully because it could be the uh, catalyst for real, real trouble in the Far East. Is it Mandarin, Mandarin in Taiwan? Yeah, yeah. There's a there's um, an indigenous people, you know they don't there weren't Chinese people there. There's a sort of they look a little bit like um, Filipinos to be honest. They got that kind of kind of look, um, and they've got their own language. But the but everyone speaks everyone speaks Mandarin, um, and uh, and you know the, I I enjoy going there. I'm pretty fond of art, and I go to the National Museum in Taipei and. If, it, if they hadn't plundered it, <laughs> it wouldn't exist because during the Cultural Revolution, a lot of art was destroyed in, in, in China. So this beautiful, beautiful, you know, all the history of China is maintained through through some of these beautiful museums they've got in, in Taipei. I mean, there are lovely, you know, some nice museums still in, in, in the, um, the Capital Museum in Beijing is, is, is great. It's very interesting. But going back to, you know, you said about the, um, you know, the history of China, it is incredibly complex. I mean, there's all these dynasties, all these warring times and factions. Um, you know, the terracotta soldiers in uh, Xi'an, um, Emperor Qin, he's, he was around at the same time as Julius Caesar. So he's the same time, 2000 years ago. You know, and so there's this enormous, he's the, re, that time 2000 years ago, is the reunif sort of unification of China. And then the issues, you know, I'm not going to get into it, Xinjiang and uh, uh, Xizang, um, Tibet. Um, it's a complex issue. It's not as, um, who's the actor who's in Offspring, a gentleman, Richard Gere. Yeah. Richard, uh, yeah, yeah. And he said, oh, you know, Tibet. If you look back, go back further, Tibet had invaded, same with the Mongols, they had invaded China. And it's retreated backwards and forwards over time. And I've been, I've traveled all those areas. I mean, there's the provinces of uh, Gansu, um, uh, Qinghai, um, Yunnan, Sichuan. I've been to all these provinces on my motorbike with my, with my missus. I've traveled all over. It's full of Muslims, full of, full of Buddhists, full of Han communist Chinese, all living together quite peacefully. Mm. I mean, Tibet, yes, Tibet's sort of now it's become politicized. It's not been, I don't think it's politicized because of, you know, by the Chinese, politicized by everyone outside. So I got in, you know, I'm riding around, <laughs> riding around Tibet, 
you know, I'm in motorcycle gear. <laughs> so I can't tell I got on, you know, I'm riding, I'm looking over. I went to the base camp of uh, all the Chinese side of uh, Everest. I, I was on a Qing, Tibet Qinghai plateau in the most sacred bay. I went to this source of the Yangtze, Mekong and Yellow River um, camping, camping out on 4,000 meters. Uh, un unbelievable. And then up into, up into Qinghai, oh. which no one's ever heard of. You know the forbidden, uh, the the lost. Um, what's it called? Um, oh, it's the lost king. You know, people just don't go there. You know, it's all that um, history of the Silk Road and trading and Marco Polo. It's fa fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And this Xinjiang thing, well, China, you know, I, I, you know, China will say it's it's a domestic issue, and they're dealing with their issues themselves or whatever they perceived terrorism or secularism or, or whatever it is um, or whatever non anti-revolutionary or whatever it is that they say it is um it's 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 a, china will always say that it's it's a chinese issue just for yeah. china to do china to deal with and the rest of the world or if they knew exactly it comes back to the media thing if you could rely on proper investigation you know um unbiased investigation to find out exactly what's going on which doesn't exist anymore because everyone's got an agenda mm. so where's what's the point in an unbiased <laughs> well, who are those people they're not employing people no one's employing independent investigators like me to go and do that stuff they're getting investigated journalists who are paid by whoever the bbc or cnn or whatever and uh, I, I, you just don't even, you know, I'll say, OK, I know the reporting on Hong Kong, Hong Kong riots was inaccurate and biased. Um, and then you see Belarus and then my head goes, is the reporting bias there, too? I don't know. It is. Of course it is, because it's all <laughs> controlled by the same ancient order that goes by 8000 years and and nobody understands this so they just see the the kind of fruit on the tree and they're arguing with this you know these bunch of grapes and as we all know if you ever want to tackle a root cause or a problem you you look at the root the, the root yeah and, uh, like you say tw i don't think i've watched mainstream media for 20 years since the events in new york clearly well you know that's all all been exposed now for anyone who's interested to find out but if they can lie to you on that big and you know to that huge an extent um if that's not a wake-up call for you then you're probably not gonna get one but Ruth, yeah it's a we... sad yeah sorry yeah no 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 you you finish your, 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 your... no 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 i'm i'm well, I just <laughs> wondered if we could go back to the triad thing, because obviously that's mm. very close to home for me. For people who aren't familiar with my story, I, I left the Royal Marines to go and run a business in Hong Kong. It was all fairly successful at the time. And within about six or seven months, I was chronically addicted to crystal meth. And I was phasing in and out of clinical psychosis at the same time as getting a job for the 14K who Rupert and, I, uh, Rupert and I have discussed, who is the triad criminal fraternity or crime gang that run Wan Chai, which historically is the uh, red light gangland nightclub district in Hong Kong, where all the sailors frequent on when they come ashore on the big American and British ships. 
and which is personified, if that's the right word, by the, the book, The Legend of Susie Wong. And I got a job working for the 14K as a nightclub doorman. And I saw a lot of, uh, fortunately, I didn't, you know, I, in my fragile mind state, I didn't do anything too stupid um, while, while I worked there. But I certainly saw another side of life, uh, the criminal side of life, the, the thug side of life, the disenfranchised side of life. You know, these gangs recruit from young men who have no prospects in life and who feel they have no, no family and no direction. And um, yeah, it was interesting, but I left Hong Kong with a lot of questions. The, the most burning one was, who is this foreign triad? And again, you'll have to, where is my book? There it is. You, if you want to know more about this, you're welcome to obviously grab a copy of um, my memoir, Eating Smoke. But one of the things I came across while working in this, this club in Wan Chai was a clique of expats that all seemed to be in cahoots with the Chinese gang. And because of my mind state at the time, I was never quite sure. I came away really kind of second guessing. Did I, did I see what I thought I did? People would say to me in Hong Kong, the Chinese, the, the triads will work with anyone. Doesn't matter who you are, so long as you can make money for them. You're never going to become a triad because they only recruit from Chinese blood. and Don't even trust Chinese people that have been abroad. And so there I was for, for well, I left Hong Kong in 96, wrote my memoir in 2000. Uh, and 11 so what's that 15 years 15 years later i'm researching for my book and i typed into a search engine the foreign triad and lo and behold it came up with a magazine article written by a chap called bill sparrow for a publication i think it was called the asia sex gazette which is was a bit random in itself but and i'm reading this article and I'm starting to get deja vu. It's about, it's about this guy, Bill Sparrow, who go, walks into a nightclub in Hong Kong while he's over there on, on some sort of business. And he, he gets chatting to a Filipina barmaid. And he says, oh, what's that, what's that tattoo on your, your arm? She says, oh, nothing, nothing. She says, no, 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 come on. He said, oh, well, if you must know, I was a member of the foreign triad. So Bill's like, Who, who's, what's that then? She said, oh, it's a clique of Westerners that run all sorts of er errands for the main triad. And to say it rocked my world, Rupert, was an under... I mean, I, I'd, I'd gone 15 years of my life thinking what the hell was going on in that nightclub. Why did my friends seem to all be doing really well for themselves? Why were a lot of them, you know, openly bragging about the drugs that they were selling in these clubs, but they weren't triads. And it was, it all got, got very confusing. And in, in obviously I was mentally unwell at the, at, at the time, which compounded the issue. Um, 
so maybe I ask you, did you come across anything like that, Rupert? I came across foreign criminals a lot. There are all sorts of gangs. Um, I came across, uh, I worked on, I sort of stumbled in when I was in uniform um, in Jim Sajoy. There was a nightclub called The Big Apple. I think it was in Nathan Road. And it was run by Western Mamazans. So the Mamazans, you know, all those nightclubs, um, they have a Mamazan, right, who, who runs it. And they've got the girls and they come in and out. And, and, and there's, you know, they dance on tables and you buy them drinks or whatever. But they sort of run by these Mamazans who keep a very strict eye on what's going on. And, and in, in those days, there were Western girls. Now, they were... You couldn't really say they had been inducted. They were working for triads, but they weren't inducted into a triad organization as, as on, on the case, on that particular case. This was a, a bad case. This was about some um, supplying, this is a pedophile ring, right up into government. That, um, and a lot of people will know about this case in Hong Kong or people, you know, other policemen and stuff will know about this pedophile case involving judiciary and all sorts of things run out of run out of these 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 nightclubs but they're also you know foreign criminals so saying a foreign triad i don't if, unless you see the sort of chinese character or the chinese name or the affiliation or whatever they were or the symbol or whatever it's very difficult for me to say that and i didn't specialize in in triads you know they in each of the stations there would be a, a regional uh, well there'd be um district crime squad and uh and uh district triad squad as well and that would be we used to think that the ocs of those squads would have to be triads themselves of a different tribe right in order to be inside and and so forth i mean we we got we we were used as expats i was used a couple of times to do you know undercover stuff you know fake rolexes and that sort of stuff mm. and, you know get called get approached on nathan road or whatever and they get go back to their lair and buy all these and then we'd raid it <laughs> customs customers or so i did and there was quite a, and there was a few guys who did undercover drug stuff you know there's the big the the famous um there's a great book by one of my colleagues called uh les les bird about marine and it's called a small band of men very very interesting book um and he in there he describes this uh you know them undercover on this uh um, ship that's transporting heroin to heroin to Australia, and uh, and they and and whether the guys were affiliated, who'd gone through you know the the ceremony thing, um, the tribes are uh, difficult to say. I mean, a lot of it's very difficult to say if someone is <laughs> a tribe. If they by law, if you you know you contain the things I said earlier, or you profess to be one, therefore you are one by Hong Kong law and you will go and you will be prosecuted, you know, if there's enough of that. you provide the evidence through the courts. But, you know, there were lots of foreign criminals from all the usual suspects from States, Russia, um, Philippines, um, other Southeast Asian countries, Japan, they're all mixing. I mean, when they're, you know, drugs and uh, contraband, there's no, they're, they're trying to cross borders. So they're all colluding together. So there's the drug side. There's the human trafficking, you know, the, the slavery, modern slavery, you know, all the girls from all over the world. Um, it used to be the 
Philippines and Indonesia, um, Thailand, right? Mostly back in the day. Uh, and and they would do a circuit around Southeast Asia to either, you know, four floors of whores in Singapore all the way through, you know, all the stuff. Um, and instead, you know, it's, it's, it's human, it's human slavery. I mean, it's modern day slavery. It really is, you know, they, they're trapped, you, you know, you know how they're trapped, they're, you know, financially um, burdened to someone who is pretended to be a friend to them and then they turned on them the usual you know how you turn you know got them hooked on drugs or got them financially indebted or threatening their family all the usual things these shit bags use to control other human beings and and they'll be all from all over the all over the world and so what you said you know you describe of having seen foreigners working closely with you know um known Hong Kong Chinese triads would be would be true, whether they'd be inducted into or whether they you know because they're affiliated they call themselves foreign triad. Um, I didn't know of any groups. I, I there was some suspicion that certain people, and I'm certainly not going to say it in <laughs> social media. <laughs> certain individuals were paid up, fully fledged members of triad groups, um, lawyers cops uh, who were foreign those there were some rumors strong rumors <laughs> that they were yeah well they'd be influential there'd be lawyers accountants policemen. anybody that does any sort of business on in in hong kong i mean i'm thinking like yeah. the, the movie industry was famous being run by the triads wasn't it well, it was. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, open the shore, you know, that empire from um, Clearwater Bay. I think, you know, you, it's, it was another form of, you know, all the way through from Miss Hong Kong to get into, you know, Starlet to get into the movies. You know, in my, in my day, um, you know, I had a spell um, be, before I went off to uh, P- PTU um, in playing, playing, playing clothes where, you know, we came across in Jim's in Jimsy. You know, the, uh, did you remember a singer called Anita Mui? She's a famous. There's a, some movies about her, and she was a famous Hong Kong Hong Kong singer. Um, a lot of the uh, famous Hong Kong stars wow. were alleged to be. You know, and, and, all and that Lau. all that stuff. Andy and, Lau yeah. was a big name when I was there, and he was alleged to have affiliations. But it's a matter of you know, have you? You know, we'd, we'd often catch, you know, some, well, hooligans, for want of a better word, youngsters, you know, getting up to the usual teenage crime stuff. And they would say, yeah, we're, I'm, I'm, you know, my big brother is such and such, who's a triad and, a, and it's sort of recruitment through, through the ranks and, and so forth. So that did go on. Um, for for local, but to say, you know, to because what I understand is a very Fans, not sort of family, but nationalistic group. If you're not ethnically Chinese, it could be difficult to do the, you know, to be fully, fully in. Yeah. Unless with with some, I imagine some rare exceptions, and and maybe people in your, you know, who may Hong Kong policemen may watch this because I'm 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 on it, and may put in your comments, and you may get some interesting comments from people who elaborate on some of this detail. Um, but 
but there were a lot of a lot of you know as I said in gangs and uh, human trafficking, um, money laundering, uh, you know, all the way through into the finance side of things, um, dodgy construction projects, uh, you know, getting things through. It could be all the way through into the legislative council. You know, that it's alleged that there are criminal, criminal links. Did you see, what was the sort of worst triad related instance? There was one, uh, I I think I wrote in my book, there was my friend who worked Chimsa Choi's side, so Kowloon's side in in a nightclub there. My my Nick, yeah. Yeah, and um, Sunny Yon territory. So I worked yep. in 14K territory. He worked for the Sunny On and he got chopped up really badly. Um, yeah. One night, just a, a, tr- a transit van pulled up. Eight or so triads jumped out the back with meat cleavers and they really did a job job on this guy. The meat cleaver chopping, we called them chopping. You know, chopping even in yeah. the Chinese called them choppings. So they, they would they would impose their, their will. They did uh, on for whatever reason they may have a, what, what they call a settlement talk where they sit down in a restaurant and they either resolve it or it doesn't resolve and if it doesn't resolve they all all the meat cleavers and they call up their gang they all the guys are waiting around and they all pile in and we used to get called up and they're all hacking away at each other with meat cleavers this was often when i was in america because i'm 999 emergency response would turn up and they're all fingers all over the place they'd all have you know, the defensive scars, you know, on the shoulders, the usual chopping, chopping wounds. You would see them. There's loads of, loads of, you know, you see old boys my age or older, you know, they got their shirt off in the summer. They've got all the, you know, the, the hacks. Um, I, in Kowloon City, I responded, you know, you know we, we never used the lifts. We used to run up. So we would always, we'd respond in this sort of way. We'd put a cordon round run up the staircase, sweep down, right? That was our normal response in EU and PDU. We're going up the stairs. It's just fingers <laughs> all up the stairs. Chopping. It was common. And, and you know, there were, you know, from the robberies, so that 90, when you were there, that 90 to 93, when I was a platoon commander in emergency unit, so I've gone, I've, been, I've finished on that chronology, so I've done my one year plus in PTU where it's mostly training. You know, you've got young guys and you're training and there's a lot of training and, and so forth. But EU is first response. You're the first there. Um, and we were just, it was just that period. And there was, there was a, all of us. So, so not just the EU, it'd be traffic. Uh, it'd be uh, the anti-smuggling task force. They're all on those die face, you know, they, um, that's 70 knot with four, mercury outboard engines you know they used to steal the cars and get them up to china and the police the police response was called the anti-smuggling task force and they would also have these fast rapid raiders and helicopters and so forth to to counter that you got all the crime units the regional crime units the organized crime and tribe bureaus so that's the the sort of elite oge they call it in cantonese um you've got all that and, and uniform as well and all of us responding to mayhem of goldsmith robberies and the, the open fires that I had, and you're a former Royal Marine and you've got people, you know, I saw the other guy, the four, five, 
commando guy you had on um, talking about his time. Andy, yeah. Um, Andy, yeah. Well, well, you know, we were in gun battles with AR, um, AK-47s, Black Star pistols, Type 54, 7.62 rounds, grenades. They were throwing grenades at us, you know, stick grenades. Um, one of the cases, one of the bad ones is called the, which my, my platoon. So there's four, four platoons in each region to cover the three shifts. So you got thrown in there. So we only have one day off a week, <laughs> six days as a commander, you've got to do, you've got a slightly extended shift because you've got, you split your platoon in slightly. So there's an overlap so that you'll always respond in our cars. We had, um, AR-15, um, it's 5.56, um, a Remington shotgun. And we later changed, this was a game changer for us in these gun battles. Um, we changed the zero, zero buckshot and then we started killing. Basically, that's it. I'll go on to that. But we literally, we, you know, we were pushing, um, we changed the round in the 0.38 revolver to a heavy barrel with a, you know, a, a stronger, um, I don't want to say dum dum bullet because it's supposed to be illegal, but that's essentially kind of what it, you know, stopping power to stop people doing yeah. it. But it was a zero zero buckshot in our Remington shotguns, which really changed changed things because we could stop people dead on their tracks. Um, and and they were they had ballistic helmets, BRVs, um, AKs, black these, stars, grenades. Yeah. These are these are these are triad smugglers, yeah. Triads and goldsmith robbers. Goldsmith. Yeah. Oh, okay, right. So the goldsmith robbers. So all those goldsmiths that you very eloquently described, you know, these beautiful shops with all the gold in the front window, they just go in and rob it and stuff. And we had major gun battles. So I'll tell you some. So the Soyhing Marginal School, we're on a, what we call a B, B shift. I'm on the afternoon shift. Um, and then the call came up. And then my Moncock car. And so each region, I've got a car, which is generally patrolling around. Um, the whole Italian. So I've got 13 cars that they're trying to, uh, they were Mercedes Benz and then they'd have one plainclothes guy on, uh, one sergeant, NCO, who is OC of the, of the car, um, advanced driver and one crew member um, who would carry the AR, AR-15 and shotgun or whatever. Um, and then we'd have all emergency kit and, you know, the usual things, not too dissimilar, not as good as armorous consoles, but not Dissimilar, and that changed over time to MP5s and Glocks, and blah, blah, as as time moved on. But in my day, that's what we had. Um, and so, you know, Marjong, the Yalgong, yeah, yeah, yeah. They they have all these um, what they call the Marjong schools, but they're basically clubs that you can go on. And four people table playing it. The robbers basically went in. I think there's about four of them, four or five locked the doors and then proceeded to rob all the gold Rolexes and, and uh, cash and wallets and stuff of everyone. Now in that robbery, they killed two people. One, because he didn't get his Rolex off. He was sort of, uh, so he just went bam, shot it in the head. We get there, we've cordoned the place. We've got my platoon has cordoned this Mahjong school, but they came out, they came out and, and blasted us with AK-47s, absolutely blasted us. And we and one of my guys has got his shotgun, he's going bang, bang, on, uh, on an alleyway. I mean, the guy's coming towards him in that one of those alleyways. He just kept running. 
and we had zero zero. We had um, bird shot in that shotgun. Did nothing. The AR fifteen which we carry is, a, as you know, is a like a, it's a five five six. It's a high velocity rifle. It had, you know, it's a uh, semi automatic. So you have got to keep, you know, the um, the bolt comes backwards and forwards yeah. and on the gas pressure. But you have got to keep pulling the trigger. But we're not. We weren't allowed to use it. Headquarters banned us from using the AR-15 because it's high velocity and ricocheting in all the buildings and causing collateral damage. So we weren't allowed to use any really. The pistol, uh, sorry, the revolver. At first, when I first joined, we had six rounds only in chambered in it, and it was weak arm. It was cross draw on a lanyard tied around our Sam Brown, and so you go out, you know, with the with a revolver. And then they said, oh, you can have six more rounds, which they gave to us in a Ziploc bag. Six rounds in a Ziploc bag. So when the Soyhing Marginal School was going on, we have our revolver most, and six rounds in a Ziploc bag, extra rounds in a Ziploc bag. My, one of my drivers, a Mong Kok guy, who I remember always, because his name was uh, Fan Siu, which means sweet potato. That's the, everyone's got a nickname. He was returning fire from behind the engine block at these robbers firing at him with an AK. And then he went, right, open up the plastic bag, get the bullets out. <laughs> and then, so they've bashed themselves out and they've overrun our initial cordon. They hijacked a bus, carjacked a bus, I should say. We're chasing them. They're lobbing grenades at us out of the, out of the top at the top floor of the bus. <laughs> now, I'm in EOD CADA all the time from, as I said, I was in EOD. And the EOD CADA uh, supported the full-time EOD explosive ordnance disposal team, which was about four or pe- four, five people. In the early days, it was an ex-military guy, and our, uh, um, a warrant officer uh, called John Rollison. He was the SBEO, Senior Bomb Disposal Officer. He's my, my boss. And he did a ridiculous number of tours in Northern Ireland, something like the most tours or something like that. And then he left, and then he came as a specialist into the police. And he was the last specialist to be in EOD, and then later we recruited with an R, CADA, to go into the full-time. So the CADA, the, the full-time guys did ordnance and everything. Rocket, you know, those things, RPG and all the stuff we get and... And, and so forth, and, and shells from the Second World War, you know, 500, 250,000, um, you know, um, aircraft bombs. I mean, Hong Kong's littered with them from the Second World War. So you get, those would be dredged up when they were building the airport and all this sort of stuff, and there's, and, uh, and then construction sites. So there's the ordnance side, but the CADA was formed to deal with IEDs. So we were trained to do IEDs. So in my time, the government trained me to be a bomb builder. So I built every kind of IED, all your Northern Ireland ones, built the mainland, all that stuff, uh, built them, learn how to build them, um, and then how to, what we call uh, RSP, render safe. So, so, and we for exercise and stuff. And I was also used in the enemy carder for um, CT exercises. So I got shot a few times by New Zealand SAS and SVU and I kind of saw on exercises and stuff because I was baddie. Mm. Good fun. Good fun. So t- I was in that cadre. So we were trained up. It was tough training. It was a good training. 
and it's put and I was I was had a, a drink with a, a former EOD guy the other day and I was saying look you know one of the things it put us we, we learn how to problem solve that's why I still got to speak so we learned how to you know they taught us to appreciate issues and problem solve anyway back to the grenades being <laughs> so I'm or platoon commander responding to this and and being outgunned on this gun back and this you know this robbery um, and dealing with liaising with the e, the EOD team to all these because not all the grenades were going off these are these Chinese stick ones you know you unscrew the the end and it's got a igniferous fuse that you pull out and, it, and sometimes it went off and sometimes it didn't. Um, and so we had all these blights uh, all over, you know, this, all over the, <laughs> the streets. Anyway, we, they, they, the, the gang escaped, but they got subsequently arrested um, through other teams, other, other police teams, mostly a regional crime squad, I think. Um, and th that was just one, just, just one case, but we were having them regularly. I mean, one of my cars got um, in Shamshu Po. It was responding to a, a robbery. But we, he, they pulled up next to what we call the Tai Soi Jai, which is the lookout. And he put over 50 rounds into that car from an AK-4, 50 rounds. So that, it's, it was a Mercedes-Benz van. And so later the ballistics, you know, ballistics put all these strings through. 50 rounds. The, the crew, none of them injured. <laughs> all on the floor, a couple of um, glass shards, that, that was it. That vehicle was in Central Police Station for about, Central Police Station for about, uh, you know, for years, you know, as an exhibit oh, in, this, in this robbery, with oh. just these holes, you know, because they, the rounds, because they're AK-47, they go through one, through and out again. And the ballistics guys, when they, when they come along, you know, they look at the trajectory by, in those days, putting strings through to work out where it came from and work back, work back the evidence. But we had loads of those, loads of those cases. It was just a crazy, it was just a crazy period. My and, friend, you know, the, yeah. Sorry, my, a, a teacher I met, I, I did a bit of teaching over there and one of my fellow teachers, um, he said, Chris, what, what have you been doing in Hong Kong? And I was like, oh, you, you, you don't want to know. He's like, no, no, go on. I said, oh, I've, work for the 14k in one of the Wan Chai <laughs> nightclubs so he was like and uh he said what do you mean I don't know about the 14k he said he said um he said, I was in a restaurant once he said just sat there normal restaurant environment everybody eating you know cl clatter or chatter of uh, crockery and knives and forks and he said all of a sudden on like some invisible sit signal said all the men in the restaurant just stood up and just threw everything they could at one guy right yeah. this is again a revenge sounds like you know someone had been caused to lose face and this was a revenge for making them lose face um yeah. the other thing i saw was a newspaper article and they were really graphic they didn't hold anything back on the front page of their newspapers there the china morning post included and this photo, it was, I think it was on the, the, the roof of a building and it was looking down into a stairwell and filling this stairwell was a mother and a baby that had just been chopped, chopped to bits. And the photo just showed it 
you know, show, showed it all. Um, yeah. Yeah. Did you? Did... Well, those, those, I had a run in with the press actually, hardly surprising. And it, and it came down to, you know, I know they got the, you know, the Chinese newspapers like all those graphic images of blood and guts and everything. Um, and, uh, and the South China, you know, they, they, they didn't really, you know, the English the standard South China didn't really show those kind of grisly, grisly pictures. I mean, sort of, they would always show, you know, action things of the police or a cordon or something like that. They just maybe show, you know, around a, a, a dead, you know, when we, there was one, one case where we'd, we'd shot this guy in Tokoan and they, they, you could sort of see that there was something lying on the ground, but it wasn't graphic. But the Chinese ones would be right up there, you know. And I had a run-in because I responded to um, someone, we used to get a lot of people jumping from buildings, committing suicide, a lot. I mean, kids used to exams and it was horrible. And as EU, I'd have, and as an inspector, I'd have to be there to be first on scene to form an opinion as to whether the death was suspicious or not at that first instant. So I went to everything. I remember um, Harry going on about seeing dead bodies and all that stuff. I've seen pretty much everything. Anyway, this one was, it's partly um, Chinese hideaway people with mental illnesses. If they've got kids, hide, lock them in. They, you, they never used to let them, you know, sort of like a, you know, they never, let, it was a sort of, I don't know what it was, being ashamed or whatever, something to do with the, the culture, but they didn't openly, you know, let them wander around. It's got better, but in those days it was terrible. Disabled. Like if you got a yeah, if you got a disabled yeah, yeah. or something, you would lock them lock them yeah. at home. Yeah. You wouldn't let them come out. Well, this um, you know, I turned up to this horrific scene of a exploded human being, a very 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 obese person, fallen from twenty stories, just like a like a balloon. And uh, you know, I just. Did all this sort of investigation, went back where, where it came from, did the initial investigation and then handed over to, to the, the scene to CID. But what had happened is this girl, you know, quite fat, quite obese, a Down syndrome girl who's never let out, had just escaped and climbed through the bathroom window and fallen to her death. Anyway, the press came up and you can imagine the scene is just horrific. And this guy was click, 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 click and all this stuff, and I lost it. You know, unprofessional for a you know, commander to do it, but I lost and said, you know, told him what I thought and all this stuff. And so there was a standoff. And uh, I, I almost got dragged off from this guy. And then he got, his, his colleagues sort of pulled him away. And anyway, he got, he got escalated to a, a senior one, my, my boss, who then, you know, and I said, oh, it's unacceptable. I'm not putting up, you know, this kind of the press doing this kind of stuff. This is a crime scene and blah, 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 blah. And they're treading in it. And there's, you know, so. And so we had this sit down. And I literally, the, I can't remember which newspaper. is one of the local, not Apple, something like this. One of the local, famous local papers. Is it a, a proper, um, and so we had a sit down. And I said, look, from now on, I'll let you do your job. But when I say no, <laughs> it's no. You don't come in my near my cordon taking pictures of dead children and you know, 
stuff like this. It's not going to happen. And so that was, that was just my, you know, me putting my standards on, on, on that situation, but it could be other bomb bands. Um, you know, bomb band is an inspector could have a different interpretation of, of things. Were you, but for me, yeah. Sorry, but were, were you around during the shark attacks? Yeah. About, I think it was 93. The first time, yeah. I think it was actually, this. it might have been 96. It might have been the first time I lived there. On the foot. Yeah. Tiger sharks. Oh, yeah. it's incredible. And again. Yeah, the tiger. Yeah. They've from, been doing it. So there's a migratory pattern, you know, the, the geography of, Bearing in mind, I have a house on the southern tip of Africa where there's great whites and Zambezis, bull sharks. <laughs> Hong Kong, it is a rare sort of rare. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't that rare, actually. There's quite a few people went missing. Again, talking to Les, who was in um, Marine, he talks about, you know, those eyes back in the day. They used to swim, you know, escaped China and then swim over in a dinghy, mm-hmm. not a dinghy, um, inner tube. And then loads went missing through to sharks, apparently. Mm. Um, and unless you know that someone's missing, account for someone and, and find the remains, you won't know. You know, just go down the, you know, to the, you know, the remains in the deep. But they, that, that, those instances with the tiger, tiger sharks was pretty... It caused a... I, I think later, I don't know when you've been back to Hong Kong recently, all the beaches have shark nets mm. on them nowadays. And, and funnily enough, you know, well, funnily enough, because of this COVID, the government said you, there's no gazetted, any gazetted beach is off, off uh, out of bounds now. You're not supposed to go there. So everyone is everywhere else except for the, where the shark net is. So everyone is on the beach. Everyone's just had enough of the lockdown. And so they're all on the beach. But not, the only place they're not is where the shark net, and the section of beach protected by the shark net. This is a bit ironic, really. Yeah, but when, uh, yeah, there's a shark. Yeah, when so those are big. Those are those are migratory pattern for those that, that which um, I was told were tiger sharks. And there was a sort of one of my friends. You know, I was I'm a para, I founded the Hong Kong Paragliding Association in the early or not, thirty years ago actually. And the other founder, um, he he, um, you know, he went. He was tasked, I believe, to go off and shoot the thing, but he never found it. I saw a shark. I saw a shark paragliding at Sheko. I saw one. I called into the police and I was flying around above the, you know, a, a place called Dagula in Hong Kong. And I saw the silhouette of two, two and a half meter shark. I mean, it's, I've seen them before in South Africa. And, uh, and, uh, and I called it in. And three hours later, a marine launch came out. <laughs> so they're there. Hong Kong has sharks, yeah. Yeah, that that summer there was uh, there was a diver they found with no legs. There was an old yeah. old man. I think I don't know if it was Sheko Bay or so. It was one of the famous beaches there. He yeah. he, he was an eighty year old man that swam every day in the sea. He was taken. There was a chap pulled out of the sea by all his friends. And again, this is front page in a newspaper. His leg is just ripped into shreds. It looked like a rainbow of ribbons. And this guy's face, obviously, in extreme shock. And as I say, this is front front page of the newspaper. It, um, yeah, put a bit of a different spin on things. Did you go swimming again? 
Do you know what? I never <laughs> swam in Hong Kong uh, during my whole time there. Um, I was pretty land-based, mainly nightclub-based. <laughs> All right. I did a lot of dancing, not so much swimming. But, um, <laughs> but yes, Rupert, listen, I'm acutely aware we haven't chatted about your motorcycle adventures, which I would dearly love to, and also your paragliding. But I think we better cut it short after what what's what I think's been what two hours now. Um, oh, has it? My goodness, I could waffle. It, it's not that it's not that I couldn't talk loads more. It's just I don't want people to go. Oh, it's a three-hour podcast. I won't bother watching that one. Um, I'd rather do it in two two parts, and we'll try and get all of them. <laughs> but yeah, it's great to it's great to catch up, and and, and I just like to say, you know. What, what you're doing, you know, I have the highest respect. Um, you know, I, I didn't mention it, but one of my colleagues, one of my hiking partners um, is a former um, bootneck like yourself, 4-2 commander, uh, um, fought in um, Falklands. I mean, I go hiking, I've heard, like your friend, um, was it Andy from 4-5, a very similar, horrible, you know, fixed bayonet stuff going on. It's just horrific. And uh, I think it has affected him, you know, uh, post-traumatic stress all the way through and the way people treat people as well you know I've had a run-in and you know he he has good days bad days and uh, I'm, I just think you should you know you know what maybe ex squaddies and cops are the same you know sometimes it can be uh, gossip too much and be too judgmental on things oh, you know oh, and it's... and uh and, uh, and, and, and I think that's the, the, the main thing, you know, I got quite upset. I sort of fallen out with one, one friend who was sort of on the phone. Oh, did you hear about such and that? And I said, I, why, why just ring me up about some bad news about, you know, this guy doing something or some misfortune that's gone, you know, be, because of his, he has his good days and bad days. Just, just be, be supportive. And so that's, that was what I, you know, if there's any after the wall, this waffling. That's, that's the, you know, that's why I listen to, you know, what you've been through and what you've done, what you've done is a big, you know, kudos and respect because it's, uh, I think there are people out there who just need support and they think, oh, because you're a big tough ex, this, that and the other, you don't, you don't deserve it. And military do. people they could need... well do with remembering your military values that you were taught in training. And I say that because people forget I'm a traumatized veteran okay my trauma came from well from when i was four years old and probably a bit from what i experienced in hong kong right and i don't i'm not a victim i don't like i've never saw any kind of you know every all my therapy i've done myself i'm not suggesting other people do that but it's just the way that i i did it but still i get attacked by servicemen and it's just like grow up you know grow up don't you tell me how how you know how i live 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 my life i'm i'm doing yeah. fine but the 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 hypocrisy of oh my my door is always open for a fellow vet it's like it, yeah. it, it they just don't understand it you know and, it, and it's a it's something that needs to be addressed because if you can't contact your old oppo for a bit of support because you're having a drug problem or you're drinking too much and and you know those guys are going to judge you what why do people think we're in a suicide epidemic you know yeah it's 
So it's, I think it's a, I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm as guilty. I was an arrogant bastard when I was young, you know, back in those days, you know, I was hungry. I, you don't come top by, you know, I won the awards and want to be best platoonist. I was arrogant and uh, unkind sometimes. And I think as I got older, I've realized, you know, you just got to be in a bit of kindness, a bit of understanding now and, now and again. And people like, and there's lots of them. And it's little who you least expect sometimes as well, because they don't talk about it. I mean, I, he was my, uh, I, I knew him because of EOD. We were in EOD. He's my oppo. We trained together. You know, you were buddy system on EOD. And, uh, and he got into a bit of this and that and the other. And, and you know, when he, left the, when he left the police, I think he joined 21 Regiment. It's, it's a territorial one, I think. And then he came back out. And he, then he's in the security, kind of security world and lives here with me. And we go off hiking. And, mm. you know, we don't, I, I'm interested when he wants to tell me the stories. I listen, I don't press him for, you know, you know I've, I've known him for years. I didn't even know half the stuff about what he went through in the, down, down south. It sounds horrific. Oh, Awful. it's my, it's just, my, my it's friend. just the worst fighting I've never, I, I don't know about First World War, it sounds awful, but just, I don't think people know. Yeah. And, uh, and what the, what effect it has, you know, it can be fest, you know, can affect you in different ways. And, uh, and, and that's the only message, the stuff you're doing now, you know, supporting people and uh, trying to, whatever you can do to sort of um, improve your life you know, get out of it, you know, keep busy and yeah. keep healthy. Yeah. Be positive, give support to be a bit kinder. Um, I'm going to try and um, get some courses online. I've, I've got a very dear chap at the moment helping me set up a charity so that when I do my charity adventures, I can use it for something that, that is going to be really constructive, just a, a grassroots course that people who've been through the forces that haven't had that, haven't had to think, sorry to say it, but haven't had to yeah. develop their spiritual, um, their spiritual side, their, their human side, because the forces is very much about keeping you trapped in your ego because you've got to go and do animalistic things. And your ego is your, your, your low, what the Buddhists would call your lower self. So your animal self. And I want to, help people develop their their higher self so they can yeah. detach themselves from this trauma see life for what it is and of course of course move, move on so it's um it's kind you say that i'm saying some of the right some of the right things rupert thank you and uh let's yeah. let's let's continue our chat just, just stay on the line because i've got a couple of um things we can that i'd like to chat about but your story is utterly amazing. It's um, certainly filled in a, a few gaps in, 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 uh, how can you well, we, we cross, we cross paths, but yes. I don't know. I'll ask it. I know, Club Nemo, you said in your book, is it well, Nemo? Or is it, well, we'll, yeah. we'll, is it sound I'll, a bit, does it sound a bit nautical? Yes, exactly. Anyone, <laughs> who's, an been, anyone who's been in the, in the Hong Kong community right, knows. That's what I, I wondered, yeah. Yeah, it's the, there was a time that you would probably have been a, arresting me. <laughs> I, Could have been. But uh, that's what that's what I did. That's that's the beauty of life. I was a big arrester. <laughs> Thank you so so much, Rupert. Oh, you're welcome. To everybody at home, I hope you've enjoyed this chat as much as I have. Massive love to you all. Please uh, keep smiling. 
through everything that's going on. Remember, you know, time is precious. Um, if you can like and subscribe, that's going to help. See you next time. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.